Blog Talk Radio. Hello out there. My name is Sam Maxwell, and welcome to the Bedford and Sullivan Podcast, the podcast that keeps you, the audience, active listeners, in the research process of the Brooklyn Dodgers TV series I am developing. Tonight, I welcome a man who is the former chairman of the history department at Long Island University in Brooklyn. He is still a professor there and has been since 1966. Please welcome to the program, Mr. Joe Dorenson. Joe, how are you doing? Fine. Excellent. I'm glad to hear it. Now, let's get right into it, Joe. Talk, talk to me about your early history in the metropolitan area. Yes. Uh, I was born in Jersey City, for which I ask forgiveness. It was not my choice. <laughs> uh, because of my parents' radical politics, we were compelled to move to Brooklyn two and a half years later uh, I was born in 1936, and I lived in Bensonhurst until we were told that in order to qualify for a low-income housing project called the Williamsburg Projects, we had to live in a tenement. So we moved quickly to Manhattan, where I had my first encounter with a mousetrap, thinking it would provide uh, American cheese for uh, lunch. And we, uh, I recall the the Second Avenue well being torn down and uh, sent to our good friends across the Pacific in uh, Japan. They are good friends now; they weren't then. Mm. And uh, I have many memories of uh, of Brooklyn uh, from the time I became politicized by my parents and an older cousin whom I revered, named Reuben Dorrenson. I uh, used to shout, Hitler wants peace by peace in 1939 after his uh, invasion of the Sudetenland. And you were only three years old in 1939. That's pretty pretty crazy. Yeah, oh, precocious. <laughs> Would you say that was a general atmosphere uh, of Brooklyn life at the time? Everybody was talking, even the little kids were talking about the politics of the day. Uh, absolutely. Uh, of course, the politics of that day for baseball fans was Brooklyn Dodgers versus New York Giants and in the World Series, New York Yankees. Mm-hmm. We, uh, there was a feisty and fiery manager named Leo DeRocher who was brought uh, in from St. Louis to revive the Dodger glory. And he did so with a bang rather than a whimper. Um, in 1941, same year that uh, Japan attacked Pearl Harbor. The Dodgers won the pennant and lost to the Yankees in an exciting World Series, marred by poor Dodger fielding and Yankee luck. Mm. It was then that I began to learn that God was not an impartial observer of baseball, but was, in fact, a Yankee fan. (laughs) Now, how did that uh, persuade your your baseball traits in the uh, early part of your life? My fascination came as a result of uh, Joe DiMaggio, who uh, at that time was the most exciting, dynamic player, five-tool player. He could run, he could field, he could hit, he could lead, and he could hit with power. I also loved the pinstripe uniforms uh, with the blue cap and the uh, New York logo. Uh, My uh, friends, for the most part, were loyal Dodger fans. A few um, 
intrepid souls identifying with the New York Giants, but they were in the vast minority. Hmm. Yeah, that's that's fascinating. Uh, you know, I, you're the first person that we've had on the show that grew up in Brooklyn as a Yankee fan, but you you have since seen the light. Am I correct? Yes, I've now converted. And my conversion will be published soon in a book, I hope. And uh, I explain that as a result of my visceral distaste for George Steinbrenner, Herr mm. George, a vicious man uh, with uh, gargantuan appetites for power and control, but little or no class. And unfortunately, most uh, newspaper experts, writers, reporters disagree with me. And they think that uh, Mr. Steinbrenner is headed for the Hall of Fame. I believe the Hall of Shame would be a better place for him. Of course, and that, I, I, that is a whole other podcast for a whole other day. <laughs> uh, in terms of your, your time in Brooklyn, uh, I want to go back to the Williamsburg projects that you guys moved into after you were in the tenements. Uh, you were telling me about how the, the um, it was one of the first uh, integrated housing projects that uh, in the area. Can you talk about your time uh, yes. in those projects? It was launched uh, as a result of the New Deal effort to uh, ease the plight of the poor and to bring uh, housing, uh, model housing. And uh, it was a wonderful experience. Each uh, apartment was uh, consisted of four floors, no elevator, good for uh, exercise. Uh, and it had uh, inner green space where we played ball, including football. Uh, it had a nursery school. It had uh, classes for all kinds of social activities, including parenting. And we were just a block away from our local public school. And so it was a paradise for young people like myself we were all poor, but uh, everyone else was poor, so we never felt jealous or intimidated by uh, elites and uh, people with power. We had the power and, and the glory. Uh, we played all kinds of ball. We didn't have play dates. We played punch ball, stoop ball, a handball, a version of handball called Chinese, and then another Hindu, and then all kinds of games that we created uh, on the spot. We were very spontaneous rather than programmed. Uh, some of us graduated to the PAL, Police Athletic League games, but uh, we, we uh, generally like to play uh, a game of, of spontaneity, pick up games, and we did quite well as a group. So would you say at the time some of your first uh, memories of, of uh, uh, discrimination was less against black people and more against Judaism, uh, uh, Judaism in, the, in, the, um, in uh, Brooklyn? The scourge of fascism reached into Brooklyn. Uh, in 1940, a young teacher married with child named Mr. Goodman was killed by two thugs who uh, were caught smoking in the bathroom and removed. They returned with guns and uh, blasted uh, Mr. Goodman into kingdom come. One of our neighbors uh, uh, 
wasted no tears on Mr. Goodman. After all, it's another Jew, she said. Mm. And unfortunately, I knew her daughter. She was a classmate of mine. And fortunately, uh, later, uh, the war, which came suddenly uh, in December of 1941 with Pearl Harbor, brought a lot of people together, former enemies. And uh, it gave us a cultural unity, something that was established earlier by the baseball team known as the Dodgers. Mm. But World War II created a real camaraderie. Many of our friends had uh, uncles, fathers uh, in uh, combat. Others had mothers in uh, support. Uh, For example, one of my friends uh, actually stayed with us while his mother, Dinah, could there be anyone be finer, uh, worked in the Navy yard in a factory. Uh, Another friend, Harold, uh, unfortunately deceased, lost his father in a uh, industrial accident. He slipped from a ladder, caught on to a, a, a highly charged electrical wire and was killed. So we learned the pain of loss very early in our lives. Nevertheless, we had a, a, a whole bunch of exciting movies in which the Brooklyn character stood out as courageous and fearless and funny. Although often uh, a clown or a uh, subject of mockery, the Brooklyn character was steadfast and loyal, always a soldier, never an officer. And uh, with his wisecracking uh, attitude, he always triumphed and was a, a, a wonderful figure in most movies uh, that we saw from the from 1941 on. What's off the top of your head? What is one that comes to mind? Oh, the the early movies were about loss, like uh, Bataan, Back to Bataan. Uh, uh, the there was a movie uh, involving nurses uh, who were caught at Corregidor, featuring Claudette Colbert. Um, I forgot the title. It'll come to me uh, late tonight. Uh, after the senior moment has passed. But uh, these movies instilled pride in the war effort and gave us a feeling we may have lost some battles in reality, but in, in uh, on the screen we were going to win. I'll never forget a movie which was based on a true story, the capture of American flyers in the Doolittle Raid. It was called... Um, the Purple Heart, 1944, starring Dana Andrews and a host of other fine actors. And although everyone was killed by the Japanese after a kangaroo court trial, uh, the closing uh, credits were placed against the skyline when these victims of Japanese cruelty were actually floating to heaven. And the message is, we're going to win, and we are forever emblazoned in the Book of Glory. Yeah, that's fascinating. What, what are some other movies that you remember that, that dealt with the uh, uh, the war effort in, in that kind of propagandic way? Oh, there are so many. Uh, there was a guy named Joe, 
uh, involved, uh, it was uh, Van Johnson's first film, first major film, and Spencer Tracy. Uh, it, it was a, a ghost story with a uh, ending in which the love interest of both men, Irene Dunn, flies a combat uh, plane and uh, knocks out a whole Japanese uh, encampment. And it, it was the, the, the message of these movies was that contrary to the American spirit, which was manifest in music, in songs like I'll Never Walk Alone or Don't Sit Under the Apple Tree, the movies usually depicted a, a naysayer, a marginal man or woman who learns through adversity or through a lesson that we win as a group. Hmm. There's no I in the word team. And that was the message of most of the war movies. Some even dealt uh, with the Holocaust, bringing attention to the evils perpetrated against uh, a minority group, in this case the Jews. Uh, so the movies enlightened us. It also provided an escape. A, a day at the movies, a, a Saturday, meant you went in at noon and you emerged uh, at 7 o'clock. You saw... Uh, coming attractions, we now call them teasers, you saw five chapters of a serial, either Superman or The Phantom. You saw um, um, four features, actually. It was a double feature, but they throw in two bonus films. Hmm. So our mothers would pack us a, uh, a bag of lunch, and uh, we would be, descend into this wonderful dark cave, and we would emerge as uh, nightfall hit, and we were thrilled by this uh, this experience. So, other than going to the movies, tell me about some of your other summer days and during the war effort in the early 1940s. Uh, well, I remember the um, account of the attack on Pearl Harbor. Um, I was listening to the radio with my parents. It was a Sunday late afternoon, almost 6, and uh, we interrupt this broadcast. And then we heard uh, subsequently the stentorian voice of our hero, uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, to tell us um, that this day would live in infamy. Uh, and he, of course, promised ultimate victory which was reassuring because the first six months of the war went very poorly for uh, the Allies. But eventually our firepower manifest in the Brooklyn Navy Yard, which gave employment to 70,000 eager workers, 15,000 of whom were women, and a good percentage of the women were African-American women. So this was a great uh, unifier it gave hope to uh, the downtrodden minorities, and no minority was more downtrodden than the African Americans, then called Negroes. And that sort of explains, I believe, why Jackie Robinson, arrival in Major League Baseball is a major turning point in Brooklyn history, in New York history, and American history, in that it created a whole new image and a whole new role for African-Americans. 
I also remember going to Ebbets Field in 1945 with my uh, friends from the neighborhood. It was subsidized by some philanthropic organization with money from the federal government and Dr. New Deal. And we sat in the bleachers and had our first encounter with baseball. Playing center field in front of me was Cal, uh, not Cal Abrams, that's a Freudian slip, he came later, was Goody Rosen, a Jewish player. And for me, it was sort of a great identifier that Jews not only could play baseball, they could play it at the major league level and play it with great skill. Um, so baseball became a metaphor for the American experience, teamwork, sportsmanship, multicultural backgrounds of the players, a Carl Perillo Italian, uh, Shuba and Hermansky Slavic background, uh, Branka, who we now know is Jewish after much research, but he was Hungarian and Italian, and he was one of the great supporters of Jackie Robinson. As a result, my university, Long Island University, gave uh, Branka a honorary doctorate in 1997 at my urging, I might add. So you had a, a Pee Wee Reese, uh, the Kentucky colonel, who embraced Robinson at crucial moments. You had Dixie Walker, who wanted uh, to uh, ban Robinson from baseball, but later came to appreciate his great skill. Uh, Dixie was from Alabama, and he um, owned a store, and he was afraid that playing with a black teammate would ruin business. You had Bobby Bragan, who, who also signed a petition, though he denied it, who came to LRU at our conference and said the two greatest Americans that he encountered in his lifetime were, one, Billy Graham, two, Jackie Robinson. So that's saying a lot uh, about conversion. Uh, you had, uh, in, in the Dodger family, not only Jackie Robinson, he was quickly joined by Roy Campanella in 48, Don Newcomb in 1949, and in 1953, uh, there actually were five blacks in the lineup. In 55, they played in the World Series and beat the Yankees, proving that God sometimes steps aside and lets the underdog win. Uh, I love the Dodgers, even though I rooted for the Yankees. And my hero was and always will be Jack Roosevelt Robinson. The, the way everybody describes it, it just sounds as if there wasn't a better place for it to happen than Brooklyn, which is something I'm sure Branca, uh, not Branca, uh, um, Branch Rickey completely understood about the situation. Right. Now, Rickey deserves credit, but he always liked cash. So his motives were mixed. There, there well, were material as well as... There's that, great, there's that great line in the movie where he says, um, you know, money's all green. Yes. <laughs> uh, and, of course, there's an actual scene in the movie which duplicates uh, history uh, accurately when Aaliyah DeRocha, played brilliantly by Christopher Maloney, um, says, like, uh, Jackie Robinson will make us all a lot of money. And you can stick that petition and shove it up your ass 
And if you don't like it, you could leave uh, and join. Uh, we'll trade you to some other team. But Jackie is here to stay, he said, in effect. And it was true. Unfortunately, Leo was uh, banned from baseball during that year. And that was, uh, in retrospect, tragic because he would have been a much stauncher defender of Jackie to the point of fistcuffs uh, mm -hmm. when Jackie was attacked by Ben Chapman and other racists in, uh, in the opposition. Exactly. It, it, it's, uh, it's fascinating that he, he got ousted right before it. Right. Very uh, fascinating. Uh, before before we keep uh, going past nineteen uh, past the late forties, I wanted right. to ask you about uh, the rest of the the summer of nineteen forty five. Uh, you you were telling me a story about your first year in summer camp. Why don't you tell uh, tell I, the, the listeners about that? A wonderful camp called Camp Kindleland, still in existence, though in a different place. And uh, something went wrong. My trunk with all my clothing did not arrive with me. So I had to borrow underwear from reluctant donors in my bunk. To make matters worse, I remember sitting around a bench listening to the radio and hearing actual event, the atomic bomb dropped on Hiroshima August 8, 1945. And it scared the bejabbers uh, uh, from me or off of me, I would use a four-letter word, but uh, you might be censored. But the point was that it was a very traumatic, uh, though exciting, because we knew this was the end of the war, but I had nightmares for years afterwards. Anyway, I ran away from camp during visiting day and begged my parents to take me home and... Uh, uh, reluctantly, they did, and I never set foot in a sleepaway camp for another seven years. I regret that. Uh, but the events of 45, the absence of clothing and the presence of the atomic bomb, uh, put a kibosh on a pleasant camp experience. Where were you when President Roosevelt died? I was at home listening to the radio with my mother. My father was usually late because he worked in Jersey City. And I'll never forget uh, the program. I think it was Tom Mix, brought to you by Ralston, Syria. Uh, uh, and um, I'm not getting paid for that advertisement. <laughs> and uh, all of a sudden, a voice came on, and there was this uh, funereal music, probably Beethoven, and the announcement came forward that... President Roosevelt had died. I looked up at my mother, she at me. We both cried. I picked up my books to go to a secular Jewish school called the Shula, several blocks away. And I remember crying all the way to that school. And when I arrived, my fellow students, both boys and girls, were also in tears. We had lost our leader. And uh, it's something that you never forget, indelibly etched into memory, the mystic chords of memory. Mm -hmm. And so tell us some, uh, somewhat about your, uh, your later years uh, in, in Brooklyn in, 19, in the late 40s and early 50s. 
I had trouble. I had a lot of anxiety, uh, complicated. Uh, it was both physical and mental. Uh, I had a glandular problem, a thyroid gland that was underactive. The doctors, in their haste to cure it, gave me medicine which created overactive glands. Then I had my uh, puberty glands kick in. <laughs> Uh, I really uh, came apart, so I uh, was sent, because of 31 absences from school, I played a lot of hooky, uh, I was sent as an incorrigible to uh, Kings County uh, Mental Hospital. It was my first gated community. And what saved me there um, was a wonderful coach named Frank Mangiapani. Frank Mangiapane was a basketball star at NYU and actually played for the New York Knickerbockers. And he took a liking to me because I had a, a pretty good game. Uh, we used to shoot two-hand set shots, and I had a very quick move to the basket. And uh, he encouraged me, and, and that gave me a sense of uh, empowerment. And then I uh, took some IQ exams, and I went through the roof, and the psychiatrist realized that, that I needed another chance, and uh, I was released after a week of incarceration. I promised my parents I would be a good boy, and I really took off academically. I got the best grades. I was elected president of the student body, uh, and I was uh, graduated number one in my class. So, and I also was a pretty good athlete, and that was always very highly valued in my community. It's, it's enough, it's, it's always a, a welcome uh, to have an academically bright person in the community, but to be an athlete as well, that made me uh, special. So, and my friends were equally special, Er Brzezinski, Ivan Hammets, Jerry London, uh, Mike Gossett, they were all outstanding students and great ball players giving the lie to that notion that Jews can't play ball. <laughs> so, right. Uh, we, have, we have no rhythm and we can't play ball. That's, that's how it goes, right? Yeah. And, well, it's funny. We would play tough teams football. You know, we called it rough tackle. We, we had m minimal equipment. We used towels uh, inside our uniforms to prevent uh, broken bones. We had these very primitive helmets. And we usually won. But after the games, the players on the other side wanted to redeem themselves, and they fought. Now, we, we were good verbal uh, uh, jousters, but we weren't fighters. And so uh, on Sunday, we would often talk our way out of a fight with the help of our coach, who said, listen, Sunday is for prayer. You go to church, we'll go home, and that's how it was settled. But uh, the tough... Uh, non-Jews who we beat uh, more often than uh, we lost uh, would want to engage in fist cuts. And uh, we, we uh, with one exception, we, we deferred fighting to another battleground. You said something earlier when we were talking about the housing projects about how you were all poor, but it didn't matter because you were all equal. Uh, right. And and the, uh, it ju it just made me think about Robert Moses, and uh, it seems as if that's something he fundamentally didn't understand, as he was clearing places uh, he considered slums for the highways. Uh, do you can you talk a little bit about that and 
and some of the elements of Robert Moses in the 50s. You make an excellent point. I see a bright future for you in media. Uh, Robert Moses took his name uh, seriously. He hated uh, Coney Island. He thought it was honky-tonk. So he uh, diverted funds that might have been used to uh, bolster the boardwalk, and he shifted priorities to Jones Beach. He did so for a number of reasons. He wanted to uh, sort of uh, segregate. He didn't want uh, African-Americans coming out to Jones Beach. It, It was a ride. It cost money to get in. And uh, we, uh, we disliked Rose, uh, Moses for another reason. He said the trouble with Brooklyn is that everyone is the same height. We took that as a compliment. We were all the same height. We were all the same class and status, and we loved each other. And we still meet uh, periodically, uh, although we know each other 70 years. It seems like only yesterday that we met. Yeah, it's it's uh it's fascinating uh time and Joe I I appreciate you coming on and obviously uh you're a busy man and you need to go but before you do let's talk about uh the uh the movie debut that's uh, that's happening for you on Wednesday. I don't know if your listeners will get to hear this but uh Wednesday evening marks a new career for me. I will be one of the talking heads in a an excellent film called When Comedy Went to School. It's based on a lot of research that I did along with Larry Richards, the writer-producer, and we try to recapture a lost era, the Catskill Mountains, where many Brooklynites who escaped the stifling heat, we went to the Catskill Mountains and we enjoyed the fresh air and the lively laughter that emerged from comic shtick. We celebrate these comedians in the film. Well, it's something you also mentioned, how you guys were good verbal jousters. Uh, that's something to Brooklyn, right? You guys, It seems as if the place yes. uh, uh, birthed a lot of great comedy. Right. We, we imitated Danny Kaye and other comedians uh, at the candy store. We used to uh, rank each other's families out, uh, our teachers, uh, school experiences, and from the candy store to the Casco Mountains was not a great leap for many, like Mel Brooks, Woody Allen, and, of course, my hero, the greatest. Uh, not Jackie Gleason. He was part of that company, too, but not Jewish. It was Danny Kay, David Neil Kaminsky. Yeah, I look forward to seeing it, uh, to seeing the movie, and, and where can we find it when it's out? Uh, it's playing at the IFC Theater in Manhattan. That's 6th Avenue and 3rd Street, opposite that basketball uh, paradise across the street. Mm-hmm. It's also at the JCC Manhattan, 76th Street and Columbus Avenue. Um, there are a number of places in Long Island and Queens. Uh, check your local newspapers uh, for listings. And I give you a guarantee that you will enjoy it and you'll uh, laugh your troubles away. Well, Joe, I really appreciate you coming on, and I look forward to seeing the movie, and I look forward to having you on here once more to talk a little bit more about Brooklyn. Oh, I'd love to. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Thank you, Joe.
that's our show, everybody. Join us on Friday for a special morning show where uh, Brooklyn Dodger pitcher Carl Erskine will be joining us on the program. Thanks a lot. Take care, everybody. <laughs>